Today is Halloween, what many consider to be the scariest day of the year. And I thought, you know, it's not, it's not every year that Halloween actually falls on a Sunday. It's on a Sunday this year, so scariest day of the year. Let's just go ahead and look at what is, by many accounts, the scariest thing that Jesus Christ ever said. So as we close up this sermon series that we've called Haunting, the words of Jesus that scare us, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead now, turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 is where we're going to look at here this morning. As you are turning there, some context for you. What Jesus says here comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, this is still part of the Sermon on the Mount, which many consider to be the most popular, powerful sermon ever preached. Jesus Christ got up, preached this Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, uh, numerous chapters of the book of Matthew are dedicated to recording what Jesus said here. And, And as we get to this passage, this comes right off a little segment where Jesus is talking about how a tree is known by its fruit. An apple tree bears apples. He's pointing to our lives and saying, like, what you produce in your life, that kind of shows what sort of tree you are. And then he takes that, and then he goes into this passage. And I'm going to tell you right now, like, these words are haunting. These words are scary. But I'm going to tell you right now, the, the purpose of this morning is not to scare you. The purpose is to spur you on. So as we hear these words of Jesus, let them challenge you. Let them encourage you. Let them spur you on. Because I'm telling you right now, like, if you are a Christian in the house, you can't read these words without your heart starting to beat a little bit stronger. Again, hopefully not in fear, but in faithfulness. So with that, would you hear the word of the Lord? Matthew chapter 7, we'll read verses 21 to 23. Not everyone, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's take a minute and uh, pray over these haunting and beautiful words of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we close up this sermon series here this morning, I pray that these words, they do sink deep into our hearts. Lord, again, not to scare us, but to spur us on to do your will in this world. That our lives may be lived for your glory, in the joy of the Lord, and for the good of our neighbor. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things, and everyone said, Amen. So for those of you who like the outline ahead of time, uh, just two points today. Two points as we get going. Here's what I want you to understand about this passage. We need to be aware. In fact, we need to beware of cheap grace rather than real faith. I think our first verse looks at that. And then we're going to spend the next two verses looking at how we should be aware of religion rather than relationship. I think if if you found a way to take this 
passage that we just read, if you, if you found a way to take this passage and turn it into a Halloween costume, it would be the scariest costume imaginable. I don't think the schools would let you put that on your kid for Halloween. What scares me about this passage is that Jesus says there are many people. There are many people who will hear Jesus say these words to them. And that leads me to think that that goes for people in this room. People in one of our venues. Those who are watching online or listening later to a podcast, some of us who can hear my voice will hear Jesus say these words, depart from me. I don't know who you are. Let these words be a scalpel to pierce your soul this morning and to expose where you really are because Jesus has a way to expose our hearts like no one else. Too many people claim to be Christians, but claiming to be a Christian is not the same as actually being one. And so we need to heed these words here this morning. Let's go back. Let's look at verse 21 again. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here is the warning for us this morning. Beware of cheap grace rather than real faith. Who here still plays board games? Raise them up high if you do. Okay, that, okay. this makes me excited because I, I thought we had moved on from those days and we're just now just sticking our faces in phones all the live long day. I'm happy to hear that people still play. Who plays board games as a family? As a family, you still play board games. Oh man, Cool. I'm going to show you some of the board games that uh, my family likes to play. You, you let me know if you play these too, okay? Uh, modern classic, Settlers of Catan. Yep. Yep. I've never lost at this game, by the way. I, I repent, Lord. That's a lie. <laughs> Settlers of Catan, modern classic. Here's another game. Uh, it's a little bit older now, but it's new to the Kimmel household. We've just started to play this. We like this game a lot. Uh, have you guys played Ticket to Ride? Yeah, yeah it's a pretty fun game. Yeah. Okay, let, let's, go, let's go back. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, I hope people still play this game because it's a lot of fun. You guys play Clue? Yeah. Nothing like a good murder mystery for family fun night, right? <laughs> now, this next game, unfortunately, has been uh, banned from the Kimmel household. We don't play this game uh, anymore because it always ends in a bitter fight. Monopoly. I don't know what it is. You throw money into the mix and suddenly we're just, we're cutthroat on each other. Monopoly is the oldest game of those games I just listed. It goes all the way back to the 30s. It's, it's found its way into American culture. We use Monopoly a lot when we talk about life, you know, the get out of jail free card. We use that a lot. And I think if you've played that, who actually has played this game? Who's played a full round? Oh, man. Okay, good. Man, I'm so happy. <laughs> you know, Monopoly money. We talk about Monopoly money. We know it's, it's fake money. But it's meant to imitate real money. And listen to me, while you're playing the game, it acts as real money. But outside the game, it's not real money. But you look at it and you think, well, it's, it's rectangle. Our dollars are a rectangle. This has got numbers on it. Our, our, ours got numbers on it. It's got symbols on it that are reflective of what 
the currency is, okay. But it's still fake. This is still fake money. Even while you're playing the game, it's fake money. But there is a generation of Christians who claim to be Christians, but their faith amounts to nothing more than monopoly money. It imitates real money. It feels like real currency when you're in here doing like Christian things, but you get outside of this context and your faith does not translate because it's not real. It's fake while you're playing the game. It's fake while you're doing Christian things. It's not real. But the, the hard thing about this is that the watching world can't tell the difference. The watching world looks at people who play Christian and they think, well, that must be what it is to be a real Christian. I mean, it looks the same, right? It's got the same shape, the same symbols. But Jesus is clear. There are those who claim his name who aren't true Christians. This is the challenge for those of us who truly have a faith in Jesus. We can't hide it anymore. You can't hide in the shadows. You can't be quiet. We have to raise our voices. The, the, the window is shutting on this world. You got precious little time left, and you can't be faking it. I think one of the clearest ways to know if, if you have an, a monopoly money type faith is that you have fallen prey or actually believe in the concept of cheap grace. Now, cheap grace, now that is a term coined by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody ever heard of Bonhoeffer? This dude was a boss. I mean, he was the real deal. Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a good pastor, inside Nazi Germany. And he was a pastor who spoke against Hitler. In fact, he was actually even a spy conspiring against Hitler. Bonhoeffer was the real deal. And he talked about cheap grace. Now, to know what cheap grace is, you have to know what real grace is. So let me explain this to us all here, if you don't know. Grace, listen to me. Grace is how we are saved. We are saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, when we place our faith in him, God extends his grace to us. There is nothing that we can do to be saved. No matter how perfect of a Christian you are, there's nothing we can do to be saved. The fact that we are saved is a grace of God. He does it when he does not have to. And so when we place our faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, the Son of God, God extends his grace to us, and we are saved by grace. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Jesus has done. And so Bonhoeffer, he looked at the world. He looked at the world around him, and he looked at people's faith, and he noticed the concept of cheap grace. Now, cheap grace— Bonhoeffer kind of describes it like this. It's, it's, it's when someone, someone says this. They say, I am saved only by the grace of God. Okay, that's correct. Uh, my good works cannot save me. That's also correct. There is no amount of hard work or good deeds that I can do to outweigh my sin. That is correct. 
But here's where cheap grace comes in. Those same people who will say that I'm saved by grace will cheapen grace by saying, therefore, as long as I say that I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter what I do or how I live because I'm not saved by how I live anyway. You have just cheapened grace. That's cheap grace. And let me tell you right now, cheap grace, that sentiment is not expressed by someone with real faith. Jesus tells us what it means to have real faith, what it means to truly believe that Jesus is Lord. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's talk about this for a second. Yes, it's true. There's nothing we do to earn salvation. You can't point to your good works. You can't point to you being a faithful, hardworking husband. You can't point to your church attendance. You can't point to any amount of good works that are proof that you deserve to be saved. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done. And our salvation comes when we repent and turn from this world and turn and place our faith in Jesus. That's when God extends his grace to us. And those who are truly saved will do something about it. Those who are truly saved, their lives will reflect that. A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus says. Those with real faith are those who are truly changed by the gospel. They will follow God's will. Church, let me ask you this. Will they follow God's will perfectly? No. No, we're still on this broken side of eternity. God will make all things new and he'll correct every wrong. No, we won't follow it perfectly. But we will seek to follow God's will. That will become the focus of our lives. But you've seen this, and unfortunately, some of you have actually said this. You'll say, as long as I said a prayer at one point in my life, I can go on to live a life like that prayer never even mattered. And you think that saves you. Listen to me. I do not sit on the judgment seat. I don't determine who goes to heaven and hell. But if that's your sentiment, that as long as I said a prayer, I can live however I want, I'm not going to say you don't have, you're, you're not saved, but I am going to say you need to have extreme caution. And you need to take serious time to look into your own soul. I, I'm a preacher of the Bible, and I don't see anywhere in the Bible where that sentiment is blessed. In fact, I only see where it's rebuked. If you think this, if you think, well, I said a prayer one time so I can go on to live however I want. If you think that and you, you think you are saved, is, with as much love in my heart as I can say, I, I want to caution you extremely. And I want to point you to God's word to see what he says about it. See, salvation is marked by a repentant life. A life that you've turned from your sin and you've turned towards God. So let's repeat again what Jesus says here. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Say it with me. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Real faith knows that our lives are lived in response to what Christ has done for us. 
And that response is to follow God's will. This leads to the second warning we see in the second half of our passage. Beware of religion rather than relationship. So being, uh, being Halloween here, known as the devil's holiday, how can we let a sermon go by without talking about demons? If you know me, you probably know that my favorite book, besides the Bible itself, is a book, known, uh, book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Now, if you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, let me explain it to you because it's a fascinating book. Uh, it's a fictional book, and the theology is not perfect, but it's still very insightful. It's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote. So, so Screwtape is a demon, and he writes these letters— And he writes these letters to a junior demon who's, he's mentoring this younger demon on how to lead people astray. This younger demon's name is Wormwood. Now, Screwtape writes these letters to Wormwood, training him on how to deceive people. Now, I'm hoping next year to actually teach a class on this book because there's so much good in, in this book. Well, okay, so Wormwood... Wormwood is assigned this person he's trying to deceive. And in, in, in the book, they call them patients. So Wormwood's assigned this patient that he's trying to deceive, and Screwtape is mentoring him on how to best deceive him. Now, this patient calls himself a Christian. And I want you to listen to the advice that Screwtape gives to Wormwood about this patient who calls himself a Christian. It says, As long as he remains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one. Now, here's what the demon says. He says, let him do outwardly the things that Christians do, but don't let it sink into his heart. Let him continue to go through the motions. Let him to continue to outwardly be perceived as a Christian. That's fine. But don't let the gospel message sink down and hit him personally. It's powerful, powerful challenge to us. See, just because you go to church and throw a little money in the offering plate, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Do Christians do those things? Hopefully. But a true Christian has been changed from the inside out, in our hearts, outwardly, not just outwardly. Let him think, as long as he does the things Christians do, he's still a Christian. That way, on judgment day, he'll hear Jesus say this to him. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? You know, here's what's scary about this, that Jesus doesn't refute that these things happen, prophecy, exorcism, and miracles. You know, we spend a lot of time when we look at this passage focusing on those things, but we often miss that, listen, three times here, These guys are emphasizing, we did this, Jesus, in your name, in your name, in your name. But listen to how Jesus responds. Lord, we did these things in your name, and then I will, decla then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Jesus is saying to them, you said my name, but you never spoke to me. You cared more about the power of my name than knowing me personally. 
See, there are people who will come up to Jesus at the end of days, and they will call him Lord. They will have worked miracles in his name, and yet Jesus will say to them, I don't know who you are. Church, we cannot move past this hauntingly awkward moment. You have to sit on this for a second. Too many times I have sat with men who have no problem talking about God. But when you try to get personal and talk about Jesus, it's clearly a foreign notion to them and they're clumsy with the language. They have a religion of God, but they have no relationship with Jesus. I grew up, I grew up out in the country, and uh, we didn't have a lot of neighbors. And, uh, but I had this friend growing up who lived in this subdivision, just packed full of kids, and I'd go to his house every now and again, and we'd hang out with all the swarms of neighbor, neighborhood kids. And I remember there was this kid, this, this, this little boy, and on his shoes he had written, I Love Jesus. We, they were not nice to that kid. Do you want to know what they said to him? They said, oh, oh, you love Jesus, do you? Well, Jesus is a guy, so that makes you gay. You want to know what I remember? That kid never backed down. Parents, that's the type of kid you should be raising. This kid did not back down. Down. But how many Christian men are afraid to say these little words, I love Jesus? Not even that. How many Christian men won't even say the name Jesus? Not in a Bible study, not in prayer, if they even do it with their families. I mean, guys, do your kids know that you love Jesus or do they just know that you follow a Christian religion? Yes, Jesus came so that we might have a pure religion. The Christian religion is good. And that pure religion is a relationship with God through Jesus, empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. But going through the motions of a cultural religion and calling it Christianity means that one day you will walk up to Jesus and he will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, he calls them workers of lawlessness. Let's just be honest. That just sounds weird, right? That's like really clunky in English. Let me, get, let, let me try to explain what Jesus is saying here, at least in the original language. Workers of lawlessness basically meant people who live without God's law in their lives. People who don't follow the teachings of Jesus. They have no regard for what Jesus has to say about anything they do or say. People who live without regard for what God's will is. People who don't teach their kids to follow God's will. People who don't consider or train their kids to consider what it means to follow God's will. What does God have to say about this? You're dealing with this at school? What do you think the Lord has to say? How can, we, how can this draw us closer to Jesus? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is saying that without a relationship with him, whatever you do for him ultimately doesn't matter. That your religion without a relationship is worthless. See, in the very first verse, verse 21, 
the people there, did you notice? They said the right things. They called Jesus Lord. When it came to their social media profile and it said Christian, they checked that box. These were people who said the right things. But in the second verse, it's people who did the right things. They even, they even did powerful acts in Jesus' name. And listen here. Jesus doesn't criticize them for calling them Lord. He doesn't rebuke them for the miracles done in his name. Jesus, on the one hand, the problem here is that, on the, the problem here is that on the one hand, they called him Lord, but they were not obedient. He wasn't actually Lord of their life. On the other hand, they used his name to perform miracles, but they didn't know him personally. Now, we need to stop here for a moment because of all the things you ever hear me preach, this is as serious as it gets. There's no more serious moment I could ever preach to you than this moment right here. This is as serious as a heart attack. This is as serious as a diagnosis of cancer. This is as serious as it gets, if Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, if he is not the, the, the crucified and resurrected Savior of the world, if Jesus is not who he said he is, then you should not care what he has to say. But if he is who he said he is, if he did what he said he was going to do, there are no more important words than his Nothing written in the Constitution of these United States. No politically correct safe language. No scientific theory written in a scientific textbook. No op-ed article in the New York Times. There's nothing more important than these words here. This is the haunting truth of this passage, is that the people who came up to Jesus on that day on this day in the future, they will not expect Jesus to say this to them. They're going to say, Jesus, we, we called you Lord. We did miracles in your name. He's, he's going to say, okay, but I don't know who you are. You, we never talked. You, you talked about me, but you never talked to me. You, you went to church, but you never walked with me. You never considered what I had to say in your life. You did the things that Christians do, but you didn't believe in the Christ. You never let me sink into your heart. So let me leave you with one simple question on this Halloween day. And I'll say it in a very Michigan way. Where are you at with Jesus? Of all the things you do or consider today, this is the most important thing I can have you think about. Where are you at with Jesus? When you consider the cross of Christ and he hung there with nails through his hands and through his feet, it wasn't just the weight of his body tearing on his flesh. It was the weight of our sin on his shoulders. Hanging there, tearing the flesh all the more. When you consider this, does it matter to you at all? When you consider the empty tomb, do you realize that that's a guarantee that you have eternal life? Does that matter to your life at this moment? Do these things mean anything to you? Where are you at 
with Jesus? What in your life can you point to to show that these things mean anything to you? Where can you show the world that Jesus is king of your life? Listen, too many of you are going to point to things that show that Jesus is part of your life, but Jesus will not be part of your life. He will be king of your life or nothing else. He will be the priority of your life or nothing else. Listen to me. Jesus wants you to follow him, and he wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. And the proof that we present that we do have fellowship with Jesus, he's very clear. We follow God's will, that we've turned from our sinful lives and we follow God. We've turned from the world to follow God's will. That's how we have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no claiming the name of Jesus without doing and following God's will. They go hand in hand. Church, Jesus says this to Christians too. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. Every other religion's leader is dead with their bones wasting away in some buried tomb. But not ours. Ours is alive. The tomb is empty because life can be had by all who put their faith in him. As we close up this series, the haunting reality in this passage is that Jesus shows us that not just some, but many people will hear Jesus say these words. So let me read this passage one more time. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and many, do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I ask you, do you know his name or do you know him? Amen. Would you please stand with me? We follow not just a concept of morality. We don't follow just a theory of God. We follow a person, a crucified and resurrected Savior who we sing to personally. We sing to corporately as we gather. The name of Jesus is powerful, but I want to know, do you know him personally? This will be reflective right now in how you sing and how you worship. Are you more concerned about the people around you or the ones seated on the throne before you? Let's pray. Fathers, we come now and prepare our hearts to worship you, Lord. We do not worship a concept or a theory. We worship a risen Savior. And so, Father, I pray that the life that he has given to us is reflective now in the worship we give back to him. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fill this place, fill our lungs, fill our voices, fill this worship as we sing to our great God our good Savior, in the power of you, Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray, here and now, knowing, Lord, that there is a fountain full of blood that cleanses us because our Savior has poured out his blood 
for our sins. But we also, Lord, know there's a fountain full of love that we can have and experience through our crucified and resurrected Savior. So, Father, we sing unto him now for your glory and the power of the Spirit. And everyone said amen and amen, church. Let's sing together. Let's sing like we mean it.